1: You're listening to Alabama's only Union Talk Radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison.
3: Folks, (coughs) welcome back. You're still listening to The Valley Labor Report. This is Alabama's only Union Talk Radio show, but we're now not on the radio. We are online only. This is the second half of the program where we have freed ourselves from the shackles of the FCC (coughs) censors. We got a whole second half of the program for you folks, and I'm still by my lonesome here in the producer box, running the show by myself. Appreciate your patience as I work through any technical difficulties that I might have. Um, Phone number is 844-899-8857. Phone number is 844-899-TVLR. Appreciate everybody tuning in. We have uh we got a good viewer to like ratio right now so i'm happy with that so let's get to this uh like i said i have some clips for you so i want to play this because um it's pretty good clips so i i was talking about trump and 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 the uaw and biden and and we're going to get some more analysis from chris townsend later on in the program about the uaw and biden But I just wanted to kind of update you on what was happening last week. And what happened last week is that the strike expansion, uh, which was, again, to two more facilities at two of the big three automakers, brought the total striking UAW members to 25,000. Comes on the heels of a pretty unprecedented uh, week for labor, all brought to you by the UAW's militancy against corporate greed and their pushing rather than capitulation to the Democrats. Just a reminder, you know, before last week, never in American history had a sitting president of the United States been on a picket line. Never before. And, you know, I mean, look, if you want to, like, get too clever by half and say that this is not a big deal and say that we should not celebrate that. I mean, you know, that's that's fine. You're welcome to your own opinion. Um, But I, I do disagree with it. I respectfully disagree with it. I think it is a big deal. Is it the same as UAW members getting a good contract, which is ultimately the material thing that really matters? No, it's not. But uh, it's it's important and it's good and uh, it is helpful to the UAW in their uh, in their fight against the big three automakers because it shows the big three automakers that um, that Biden cannot, at least publicly, go against what the UAW is doing. And so they're not going to be able to rely on that help from the state that they might otherwise be able to rely on. So it's a it's a good thing. It's a good thing, I think, in my opinion. Similarly, I know that at one time, you know, Republicans, they cared about labor, um, you know, back during the Civil War when Republicans were, you know, the home of socialists and progressives and radicals, you know, I know that not a lot of Republicans will know that today, but uh, in the, you know, during the um, uh, the early 1900s, the city of New York had a socialist Republican mayor. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that, that's kind of a pretty different party back then than it is today but i don't know that we've ever seen one so pathetically and clearly desperate for an endorsement from a union and i pulled a clip from trump's speech in michigan where he and I, and, and i lost it and i'm going to include it in the clip when it comes out when when we push this clip when we push this segment out as its own clip we're going to we're going to include the clip from trump's speech because it's so funny because like six different times during the speech, he says, the UAW should endorse me. Sean Fein, he's a good guy. He's a good guy, but he needs to endorse Trump. Donald J. Trump needs to endorse me. Um, and it's just, it's like, wow, I've never heard anybody that desperate for an endorsement before. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. So uh, you're going to definitely want to check this segment out when it comes out as a clip. Because especially all right in a row, it's it's pretty it's pretty funny to watch, and it's made even more pathetic because because you know uh, only a couple weeks ago he was attacking Sean Fain and advocating for the complete destruction of the United Auto Workers Union. Listen to this clip.
0: What's happening to our auto workers is an absolute disgrace and an outrage beyond belief. Auto workers are getting totally ripped off by crooked Joe Biden and also their horrendous leadership. But Joe Biden's cruel and foolish electric vehicle mandate, that's how bad this policy is. Your union heads know it, but the union bosses don't want to do anything about it because they're not leaders.
3: (laughs) He was singing a very different tune about Sean Payne last week when he was begging for his endorsement. uh here's another one uh, uh uh some some more of donald trump's takes on the uaw
0: and your bosses are leading you right down the tubes you shouldn't pay your fees they get these big fees from all of their workers
3: yeah so there you go uh donald trump advocating that union members not pay their bosses fees and when he says bosses he means Union bosses, which we know here is a right-wing propaganda term, meant to equivocate between the elected leadership of unions to the dictatorial, illegitimate authority of bosses and ad employers. Because they know, like instinctually, that people kind of resent that. Resent that, resent that authority, right? And with good reason. <clears throat> and so if you had U.A.W. members stop paying their dues, that would mean the complete destruction of the union. And uh, so, yeah, that was what Trump was saying a couple of weeks ago. But last week, he was really begging for their endorsement. So, you know, really a shady and slimy guy, this guy. Um, but, uh, you know, he pretended <clears throat> he kind of made some noises about supporting the strike. But what he was really doing was supporting a strike that doesn't exist, because <laughs> what he did was he made some noises about supporting their uh, uh, their fight for better wages and working conditions. But he said that they're not really fighting for the right thing. The workers don't know what they need to fight about. Donald Trump knows what they need to fight about. And what they need to fight about is, sh- sh- uh, is-, is Joe Biden. And they need to strike by voting against Joe Biden in the next election. And, you know, I just... Not exactly a great analysis about what a strike is, uh, but it was all around, you know, why the UAW should support him. It was not about the UAW fight on its own merits, which is what the UAW wants, which is what workers want. We don't want you to only come support, uh, to support us for your own political agenda. We just don't do that. We just don't want to, we don't want you to do that. If you're going to support us, then support us and we're going to welcome it. and regardless of what party you're from or really who you are, and, and I have and, and so many workers have bona fides on, uh, uh, of that kind of thing. Unions have the bona fides about we'll support. We're, we're happy to accept support wherever it comes from. And specifically, you know, I've been talking about this lately in relation to this uh, back in 2020 the TVA was trying to outsource about 80 jobs, including about 20 to 40 here in Huntsville. And the union was attacking the TVA and actually got Trump to stop it. And over the course of this, we uh, the union had Jeff Sessions speak at a rally against the outsourcing of these TVA IT jobs. Happy to have that. Happy to have Jeff Sessions speaking in support of the workers. Happy to have Donald Trump actually do the thing to uh, stop the TVA from making that happen. But we're not super interested in you trying to sell us on voting for you. Also, he made these comments from a non-union auto parts manufacturer at the request of the boss who was connected to Trump by the National Right to Work Foundation. (laughs) They handed out signs to the crowd that said union members for Trump, which is this that's a thing that I acknowledge exists. Right. And yet multiple people who are holding these signs said, no, I'm not a union member. I was just given this sign. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's amazing. The and and and. despite all of this, all this to say that this was clearly not a union rally. This was clearly not a UAW rally. This was not a rally to support UAW workers. This was a scab rally at a non-union plant put together by sworn enemies of the working class. And yet the mainstream media, which I'm always told has a left-wing bias, who hates Trump, wants to do everything they can to keep him out of power. The mainstream media gave Trump a whole week of headlines. Trump to visit the picket line. Trump to visit striking workers. Trump. All of these things. It's all a lie. It was not true. And we knew that it wasn't true going up to it. And yet they gave him just a whole week of these headlines. Really, really crazy stuff. But we also know, you know, on top of... Even if you just take the comments at this rally on their own and on their own merits, we can see that the support for working people was really superficial and only about him, which is how he supports anything ever. It's all superficial and it's all about him. And we can see that also from a couple of weeks ago. We can add some context to it where he was attacking the UAW. But also we can go further back to 2008 where Donald Trump was saying that the UAW was responsible for what happened to the auto industry. Listen to this. So you don't think he's conceited enough?
0: I think that the unions are really, really hurting very badly what's going on with the autos.
3: And his bad opinion of the UAW is not just an isolated opinion. Here's his view about workers generally getting raises. Listen to this.
0: And you know, I see it in my own company. While my company is a lot newer, over the years, we have Christmas bonus time, right? And we've done well. Now I pay somebody a bonus 20 years ago, then you give them a little more, a little more, a little more. Now it's 20 years later. All of a sudden I'm saying, I'm paying them too much. I'm paying up too much. I mean, I'm paying some guys much more than I should be paying. You know why? Time. Same thing with the unions. They get a little increase, they get another, another. What do your guys Forty, got? fifty 40-50 years. Ago. condo, or what do you give them? No, I just give them bonuses. But you know, I always but like I to give But I know it's not more. a hickory cheese LOG. No, know that. I'm not even talking about top-level people. Okay. I'm talking about you go a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. All of a sudden, 20 years is up, and now you're saying, man, that's a lot of money. I'm sitting behind but my desk. I need it,
4: right? They expect December rolls around. I think Don's going to be good to me.
0: No, it's the same thing with the unions. That's right. They get their little 5%. They get another 2%. They get another 3%, 4%. Then all of a sudden they're making more money than the people that own the company.
3: What a ghoul, right? And of course we know this (laughs) is not true from our experience as workers. When we get 2%, 4%, 5% raises, uh, we never end up making more than the owner of the company but also the, you know, even more perverse thing about that is that it's actually exactly the opposite. Um, inflation is a way for employers to mask pay cuts. Because as inflation increases, if our raises do not at least match inflation, what we're seeing is an actual decrease in our purchasing power. But Trump thinks uh, that we should just accept accept pay cuts and so you know uh the uaw president sean fain was asked to respond to this to uh you know what trump was saying about uh to uh, he was asked to respond to trump's overtures towards the uaw you know his really kind of groveling at the feet of sean fain which i could get used to right (laughs) i could get used to presidential candidates groveling before union presidents that would be awesome so uh you know uh Sean Payne was asked about that and this is how he responded.
2: Is the former president right? Does the push for electric vehicles here in the United States hurt your union? It doesn't if it's a just transition and that's what we're fighting for right now. It doesn't if the companies do the right thing and uh, put this work under you know our agreements or, or to our standards. And again, it's the companies driving this race to the bottom and they're using our tax dollars to finance it. And you know, I find a pathetic irony that the former president is gonna hold a rally for union members at a non-union business. And you know, all you have to do is look at his track record. His track record speaks for itself. In 2008, during the Great Recession, he blamed UAW members. He blamed our contracts for everything that was wrong with these companies. That's, that's, That's a complete lie. In 2015, when he was running for president, he talked about doing a rotation, taking all these good paying jobs in the Midwest And moving them somewhere in the south where people work for less money and then to make people beg for their jobs back at lower wages and and the ultimate show of his how much he cares about our workers was in 2019 when he was the president of the united states where was he then gm was our our workers at gm were on strike for 60 days for two months they were out there on the picket lines i didn't see him hold a rally I didn't see him um, stand up at the picket line, and I sure as hell didn't hear him comment about it. So here's the he was question: missing in action. Here's the question, the President: uh, uh, What about a meeting with Trump? Would you meet with him when he's in Detroit tomorrow? I see no point in meeting with him because I don't think the man has any has any bit of care about what our workers stand for, what the working class stands for. He serves a billionaire class, and that's what's wrong with this country.
3: Well, there you go. Perfect response from, Sean, uh, response from Sean Fain. Over on the other side of the aisle, uh, Joe Biden was, uh, was able to meet the president, actually. Uh, he visited the picket line, was able to meet uh, the president of the United Auto Workers. I'm uh, really happy that Joe Biden was able to do that. Uh, so probably a high point for him in his career. <laughs> uh, unironically, that should be the case, but uh, we know that people don't value union leaders uh, that much. But Joe Biden visited the picket line, he supported the strike that actually exists, not one that he made up in his mind. He did not turn it into a rally for himself. He kept the focus on the workers. And whatever else you you, know, you want to say about him, whatever else things that would be true and that we're going to talk about later with Chris Townsend, that's a fact, right? That's what Joe Biden did at that rally, at, that, uh, at, at the picket line. And at this visit, Sean Fain gave an amazing speech that was carried across cable news in full where he also did not endorse Biden. He barely even talked about Biden. He talked about the strike and about the broader war on the working class and how the working class is now finally fighting back. And here is just a sample of his speech that not only was carried across several cable news channels, it was reproduced in full on the White House website. This is amazing that this kind of stuff is going to be is now on whitehouse.gov. I mean, that's just awesome. Listen to this.
5: You know, this site, Willow Run, it holds a historic place in the history of our union and our country. You know, this was part of the arsenal of democracy during World War II. It's where they built the B-24 Liberator bomber. You know, that, that bomber, they built one of those per hour when they were at their peak. It's what helped us win the war. So today, 80 years later, we find ourselves here again with the arsenal of democracy. It's a different kind of arsenal of democracy and it's a different kind of war we're fighting. Today, the enemy isn't some foreign country miles away. It's right here in our own, in our own area. It's corporate greed, and the weapon we produce to fight that enemy is the liberators, the true liberators. It's the working class people, all of you working, working your butts off on those lines to deliver great product for our companies. That's right. That's how we're going to defeat these people. That's how we're going to defeat corporate greed. Is by standing together.
3: There you go. Reproduced in full on the White House website. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. (laughs) But, uh, all right. So um, we're going to go ahead and wrap that segment up and move on to the next one we have uh, on the line with us. Jay Malone is the he's the political and communications director for the Texas Gulf Coast Area Labor Federation, uh, makes up the Galveston, Harris and Tideland Labor Assemblies. I'm um, really looking forward to this conversation because, you know, uh, I am not only a member of of the labor council here in the area i'm secretary treasurer of the labor council of north in north alabama and uh adam is also a delegate to the labor council and uh we rechartered the labor council back in 2020 so we're always looking for new for for ways to to help build the council uh and uh, and, and so we're gonna we're gonna talk to somebody who does who, who does this kind of stuff all the time jay appreciate you taking the time to join us this morning
4: Absolutely, I'm happy to be here.
3: So, you know, first, can you just talk to us about <clears throat> about your uh, how you came to be so involved in the labor movement? Like, what was it that that made you want to, you know, kind of take up this kind of work?
4: Yeah, for me, um, I I actually got uh, back to the states in 2016. I'd been living uh abroad in europe for a number of years and um i worked a number of political campaigns um when i got back and um was kind of questioning the theory of change you know if you just focus on elections uh you have you're always relying on individuals to fix problems um and a lot of times you don't get what you're you really hoping for out of that and when i was up in connecticut uh a number of years ago um, I worked for the the former um, worked to help elect the former uh, director of UAW uh, Region Nine A to a state senate seat, and I was kind of able through that election to see the power of labor politics when we really come together and and mobilize and get members out of the doors and talking about our values. Um, and so when I moved to Texas, moved back to Texas, um, uh, there was a an opportunity at the local council. Um, they were looking for someone to come in and um, help expand their political program, um, and I jumped at the opportunity. My my family, uh, growing up in Ohio, was uh, was a labor family. We saw the benefits of uh, of unions firsthand, um, and uh, I'm glad that we've been able to uh, grow power in the Houston area together.
3: That's great. That's great. And and so can can you talk to us about your. Uh labor federation, who, who all, you know, I, I mentioned the labor assemblies that make up the federation. Uh, what kind of workers do y'all represent? How many unions are, are part of it? Uh, how many workers, that kind of stuff.
4: Yeah. So the, the area labor federation, um, was established in 2015. Um, it was a consolidation of five labor councils in the Houston area. Um, two of those councils, all those councils became assemblies when uh, we were um, reconstituted. Uh, two of those assemblies are no longer active in the Brazos Valley and in Montgomery County, uh, but three of our councils uh, still are still active as assemblies. And uh, we we cover 13 counties in the Houston area um, with uh, 60,000 members, 95 affiliated unions. Um, that's up from 70. Uh, when the council wow. was initially um reconstituted so we've grown from um about 35 to 40,000 members uh that were affiliated with our council to over 60,000 um and uh we are we're very excited that uh that we we've been able to to come together like that over the over the past uh now 8 years
3: Wow! Yeah, that's awesome. And and just kind of for for your own frame of reference, the Alabama State Labor Federation has about I think fifty five to sixty thousand uh, members in their affiliated unions. So, uh, really a pretty big organization that we're talking about over there. And uh, so for for people that don't know, you know. What labor councils are? I think it. You know, we we've talked about how they're basic. They're federations of unions. You know, unions come together to form these organizations. But what is the purpose of a labor council? What should a labor council be doing ideally?
4: Yeah, I think that the way that we should think about labor councils is as the the collective voice of all unions. Um, you know, one of the challenges that we have with the complex political and economic uh challenges that we face um is that you know individual unions often especially in the south they struggle to marshal the resources Mm. to really take them on um and on top of that we all have to focus first on our members and what our members need um so as an individual union you know you are going to focus on you know improving the conditions of your members and their families and that's the first and the most important priority. What the council can do is help to address a lot of the the bigger systematic systemic issues that we're facing. So, you know, I think a good example is our work around um, housing justice. Um, at the beginning of 2020, we did a survey of our affiliates, and we found that housing insecurity was the top concern of members. Um, that was surprising because it wasn't something that had really been on our radar previously. And so what we did was we launched a campaign, we brought in community allies, we worked with elected allies, and we were able to help distribute a lot of, you know, essential aid, uh, connect people with with legal support. Um, We ended up doing 21 events, helping 7,000 people connect with with assistance through those events. And those are the kind of things that um, in our region, um, where we are a right to work state, um, it's very, we don't have, you know, public employees in Texas don't have collective bargaining rights outside of some firefighters and police. Um, state employees have no, uh, collective bargaining rights. Um, it's just a really challenging state to work in. Um, and by, but by pooling our resources, we're by far, uh, the largest organized interest of working people in Texas. And there's a lot that we can do that's outside of that, you know, the the traditional remit of uh, of unions,
3: and you know that that is a that's something that I have seen come up a lot lately is that you know the the story that <clears throat> housing is a really big issue for you know members and, and workers and, and and folks in a community, and also that our civic organizations basically were not tracking that, you know, like unions and, and churches and the government, like it, it just really flew under the under the radar until it's kind of come to this boiling point where uh, a lot of organizations are seeing more of the need to address this issue. Um, and it's something that, you know, unions have addressed in the past. Uh, one of the, one of Adam's uh, shop talk, History episodes, he talked about Powderly, Alabama. It's a community in Birmingham where it was founded as a uh, residential co-op by the Knights of Labor for their members, and uh, so that's a, and it's still there today. Obviously, no longer run by the Knights of Labor, <laughs> uh, but that's a, that's a, you know a pretty cool thing. And so you know unions have a history of doing that kind of stuff, um, and so it's good to see more move towards that. Um, is there any any other work that y'all have been doing over the last few years that that you think would um, that you'd like to highlight for the audience?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I think the big picture is that um, our work is um, is predicated on the idea that working people can you know author their own liberation. Um, you know it's it's not that we have to rely on people to take care of us it's not that we have to rely on you know nonprofits and social services um we need to advocate for ourselves and i think that the thing that we've learned through a lot of our work in the gulf coast is that you know the problem with a lot of the people that are working to address these these issues is that they're not experiencing them themselves mm. and they also kind of have a different a theory of change that is very different from ours you know, we we look at it as these are collective community problems that we all have an interest in addressing, and that means that we need to bring all of these vo- voices in, especially the voices of the people that have been impacted. Um, but traditionally, you know, most, you know, especially in cities like Houston that have massive philanthropic, uh, you know, communities, you know, this is rich people that are saying we need to make sure that we're getting homeless people off the street, instead of saying, well, like, why is that person homeless in the first place? Um, And what can we do to actually change these systems of oppression? Um, And that's kind of the big picture of all this, you know, we, we have a political and an economic system Mm. that creates these outcomes for working people that are not in not not working for us. Um, And until we kind of recognize and and come together and and find, you know, organizations like labor councils that where we can kind of we can pool our resources and work together, we're not going to really make any headway because we're always going to be relying on these wealthy interests that are ultimately like they're the ones that are creating the problems. Um, You know, that's that's the reality that we that we're we're trying to take on head on. Um, I think the the opportunities here are really historic right now with the Inflation Reduction Act, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, the CHIPS Act. All of these, all this federal uh, legislation um, is going to send, you know, billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to our regions. And the question is, like, are Labor Councils going to meet the moment, are unions going to meet the moment, and really come together and organize to make the most of this? where we can really transform our economy, or are we going to miss it and, you know, continue with the way things have been? Right,
3: right. I I think that's really important. And, and, you know, for for my own edification and, and for people on our labor council, how have you gotten other unions to buy into this kind of thing? Because one of the most frustrating things that I have found talking to other unions is, They, uh, you know, they the first thing they ask, which is not necessarily unreasonable, you know, depending on how it's asked is, how is this going to benefit my members? Right. And that's a reasonable thing to ask. But then they don't. It's. I have found it difficult in some cases, you know, we've gotten several people to affiliate and, and several people haven't affiliated, but in some cases, it's difficult to, to to get them to see the value of having a collective voice for labor in our community, uh, advocating for us and doing things for our members, even though, you know, I mean, that's all that a union is, right? It's a collective organization of workers. And so a labor council is a collective organization of, of unions. Um, and, and so in some cases, I have found it difficult to kind of uh, uh, win people over and get folks affiliated. How and and but y'all have seen pretty significant growth in your labor council. What uh, what's your secret?
4: Well, you know, I um, I was watching your show uh, recently with Vonda from the Nashville CLC. And I think that there are examples that we're seeing in different areas in the South, because the the first thing that we all have to recognize is that the South is different than anywhere else. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if we're trying to take lessons from Los Angeles or New York or Seattle or Chicago, um, they're just working in completely different contexts. Um, And we need to focus, I think, first on what are the examples from the South uh, where we have similar challenges that we're facing. Um, and I think there's a few things. One, I think the political program is really essential because ultimately, um, every union um, needs that kind of collective effort. Um, there are very few unions in the South. Now, this isn't this is this is a broad statement, but most unions in the South aren't able to run their own independent programs um where they can really impact the results of elections. So, you know, I was up in your area a couple of years ago, um, and I know you've got some big big cities in northern Alabama uh, that are governed by Democrats, even though the state is hostile. Um, You know, and I think, like, figuring out where those opportunities are to elect pro-Labor Democrats and really have an impact in those elections is a really critical first step, because that's what kind of builds the credibility of the council and brings people into the process. Um, but then having like a really intentional strategic planning process, uh, the AFL CAO developed a really helpful, uh, guide, uh, criteria, set of criteria that we use in our strategic planning, where we have a bunch of different buckets of work. And then we sit down with our affiliates and assess the progress that we've made or lack of progress, um, get their honest feedback on what we're, we're doing and kind of think as big as possible. Um, you know, earlier this year. We uh, successfully um, wrote and won a contract. Uh, We we won a contract with the county, uh, with Harris County, which is the county that encompasses Houston, um, that is going to, uh, that's worth nine and a half million dollars, that's going to help us expand our apprenticeship. Mm. Um, And that came out of conversations, that work, the work we did to write the grant, the work that we did to... To pull all of the planning together came out of conversations with our building trades where you know they said, you know, obviously the first and foremost thing is is growth. You know, they need they need more they need more support in their um, in their training programs. This is something that helps to drive membership. And we recognized that there was an opportunity with the American Rescue Plan Act to go after federal stimulus dollars. And we were able to pull you know application together. Um, We had 11 unions that were part of it uh, that will be a part of it. Now we're actually running that right now, Um, but it's really, you know, really understanding what those interests are. And, and honestly, like what i found on the council is like, sometimes, you know, people aren't always going to tell you exactly what they, they want to accomplish. So you need to figure out ways like we did with this contract to you know, to really help people think big about like, what's, if, if you had unlimited resources, what would you want to do? And that's where we've been able to get to is where we're able to think really big about what we can do together here.
3: I think that's a, that's a really good, uh, some really good advice. And, um, You know, where I can where I can find the time, that's some of the stuff that I try to work on. Uh, And hopefully one of the things that one of the things that we are really trying to push um, over the next year with our Labor Council is school visits. Um, and, you know, I know that the, the trades really like pushing their apprenticeship programs um, because they're they're really good, their apprenticeship programs, you know, if it's the equivalent of a college degree, uh, both in, you know, the amount of, uh, you know, education that you get and then also the earnings that you get afterwards and then you don't have the debt. Um, so that's pretty cool. And so we want to talk to more people about that in schools and, and we're uh, working on that. We've been in a few schools already with some iron workers and folks like that, stagehands, so uh, hoping to to build that out. Um, Before we let you go, do you have any, you know, any advice to, you know, unionists, workers, labor activists across the South about getting involved in their union or their um, local labor council and uh, anything else that that you wanted to mention before we wrapped up?
4: Yeah, I, I think that the you know the way we need to think about this this phase of history that we're going into is you know we're in a moment where we have the resources, uh, largely thanks to work by the Biden administration, to transition into a completely different economy that works for everybody. Um, this is a historical moment, um, and we we know we have allies um, in in the federal government. Um, I mean, President Biden was walking the picket line last week. We also have a lot more allies in local government than we think. Um, What we found is as we've, you know, kind of grown awareness of the labor movement in the Houston area, you know, we're hearing we were getting a lot more support than we sometimes thought before because, um, you know, a lot of these elected officials just weren't aware of what we did. You know, in areas like ours, where, you know, we have 5% union density, you know, very few people that come into elected office have any interaction with unions. Um, They have very limited knowledge of kind of our model and kind of what it can do, Um, you know, what it means to empower ourselves uh, through unions on the job and what that means for our interaction with our communities. And, people, people want it. Like people want to find their ways to into these jobs. They want to expand them. Everybody that I talk to, they talk about how either they wish they'd done it themselves or they have a cousin or a son or daughter who they want to try to get into our programs, into these jobs. And so, but I think like the really important thing is that we need to understand the context that we're working in the local context, identify the opportunities, and then understand each of our interests really well, because too often we have mistrust of each other. Um, this is something that I that I see regularly. You know, when you come into a, a council meeting, you know, there's somebody from the building trades that maybe says something that's uh, you know off color or says something that uh, that doesn't fit with your your uh, your values. You know, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that they're an enemy. That just means they're coming from a different place and we need to understand that. And that's the way that we get that we move forward is by we're all trade unionists. Ultimately, you know, even if some of us have, you know, different politics at at the basic level, there's a reason why we're all in those rooms together. Mm -hmm. And if we really come together and work together, we have the resources, we have the access to resources to fix all of our problems. Um and we need to seize the moment. And I think that, you know, working within your, your local council, that's a way to do it.
3: Jay Malone, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. I appreciate it.
4: Absolutely. Appreciate it.
3: Yep. All right, folks. Uh like I said, that was Jay Malone, political coordinator for the uh, Texas Gulf Coast Area Labor Federation. Uh, if you're involved, if you're, you know, in a union, make sure that you are involved. Make sure that you're involved in your union. And then make sure that your union is affiliated with your local labor council and that your union participates and, your, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that, that would be really helpful. And, you know, uh, like you said, there's there is really, I think, I think there's a lot that can be won just by talking to people because i i do think that especially when you're talking about the local level you know these people are not like getting millions of dollars in kickbacks typically uh these people are you know they're making not really that much more than uh, the average worker in the area a lot of these people are part time they have other jobs you know so in the local in, in the local scene you know i do think that You are that you leave a lot on the table when you don't even talk to the local officials. Nobody makes the case, nobody educates them about stuff. So it's worth doing for sure. It's worth doing for sure. Appreciate everybody tuning in. 51 viewers right now and 79 likes. If you haven't liked the stream, then please do. I know that some people are coming in and out. Uh, so we appreciate your uh, appreciate your viewership. Appreciate two ten dollars super chats from Bear Post. The first one says, "This is for tolerating and reading my UAW for Trump comment." Uh, and without being attacked for it, I'm behind. I'm behind in viewing. Just heard it. Yeah, you know, I uh, like Jay was just on talking about how you know trade unionists were going to be coming from different political places and we're going to disagree. And I'm I'm happy to talk about those disagreements. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sugarcoat how I feel about Trump, but that doesn't mean that i'm gonna you know treat people that way uh i really do appreciate your research Deaf the labor lawsuits and fighting for and with uaw i love my union and would strike with anyone's union thank you appreciate that even if we come from different places politically um and uh so let's talk about here in a few minutes we're going to be talking to chris townsend about biden some of his analysis on Biden. Uh, before we get to that, anybody wants to call in, they can. 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We have a... Uh, the writer's strike has just ended, though, and I wanted to g- give you this video from Adam Conover, uh, which is really cool. Adam Conover, I've been a fan of him for years, and you know his leadership during the strike has really... Um... Oh, no... Oh no! We didn't include the we didn't get the writers uh the w g a clip oh dear, let's see if I can find it on the internet. Hold on <laughs> but you know adam conover I've been a fan of him for years, and then his leadership in the um in the strike has really cemented that you know it's it's uh super great when your faves are pro union, right? And so he has definitely done that. And he's been really leading the strike. And and so the strike is is now over. They have a tentative agreement. That doesn't mean that that everything is done. The writers still have to vote on it. But this tentative agreement, by all accounts, looks pretty good. It really does look pretty good. And so I would anticipate a um so I would anticipate a ratification, but we'll see. You know, you never really know. Uh, it's something different could always happen. But um, uh, they won about four or five times more than what they were asking for. So there was some analysis that said that the original or no than what the companies were offering. So there's some analysis that said that basically the original company offers would increase the value of the contract by like $43 million. $43 million more would go to writers over the course of this contract than than if it had stayed status quo. And so now with this tentative agreement, it's like $250 million more, which is very cool. Um, and so uh, we are... Um, And so this is, so uh, I'm gonna play this clip here from Adam Conover, where Adam Conover kind of uh, talks about all of the really cool stuff and some of the groundbreaking stuff that they got in this contract. So let's listen to this.
6: So the writer's strike is finally over. And I am so happy to tell you that we fucking won. This is the contract that we just spent the last 148 days fighting for. And let me tell you what's in it. A guarantee that a minimum number of writers be hired on every show. A guarantee that comedy variety writers like me be paid the same in streaming as we are in TV. Provisions that mean better pay for screenwriters, better pension and health for writing teams, script fees for staff writers for the first time, and protections against AI that mean that AI can't write scripts, edit scripts, or undermine our rights and credits. And we want a success-based residual. So for the first time, when more people watch a movie or TV show on streaming, the writers that created it will make more money too. These are all things that they swore to us five months ago. They would never give us in a million years. But we went on strike and we hung together until they were forced to come to the table and meet our demands. And we changed not just our industry for ourselves, but for every writer who comes after us. And I am so proud of us thank you to every writer who made this victory happen and thank you thank you to every fellow worker who stood with us we are going to stand with you as well because what this proves is that when workers stand together we win and now let's get back to writing
3: yeah so that's really cool uh really happy for the writers and you know uh, in some of my appearances on um on radio, uh, you know, I, I was I was told that, you know, a lot of people may not have sympathy for the riders and all this kind of stuff. Um, and and I have just not found that to be true. And the polls have not borne that out. The polls have not borne that out. The polls have have showed that uh, the American public has consistently been on the side of writers because everything that they've been asking for has been eminently reasonable. And because, you know, it's been clear that uh, the media companies have been consistently decreasing the quality of all of the jobs in the industry. But, uh, you know, in particular, as it relates to this situation of writing, and that's an issue. And and I think people can people can understand that. And it's not to say that as Bill Maher did, that oh, they're gonna be guaranteed a living no matter what they do or how what the quality is or anything like that. You know. It's to say that look, if you're gonna be creating product for multi-million dollar companies, you should share in the value that you create. And it shouldn't all go to these you know, vampires and leeches at the top. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, really cool stuff there. Um, and I, somebody else said, uh, uh, you know, the analysis about the total cost, it went from like 20 or 40 million to maybe 200 million. Um, but the total cost of the original proposal from the WGA was like 450 million, I think. So they didn't get all of what they wanted. I think somebody said that they got like 42% of the total value of everything that they wanted. But, you know, you don't get everything in a contract and it's significantly more than they originally asked for. So so we'll see if the writers accept it. I think I would anticipate that they would, especially since Adam Conover seems so pleased with it, and I don't, and and there's no reason to believe that that he would be trying to sell a bad contract. So uh, we'll see what happens, and uh, we'll keep you updated. Of course, this does not mean that the actors are not still on strike. Uh, the actors are still on strike, and so all of these, um, and so you know there are still struck products, and so influencers are asked, have been asked by SAG-AFTRA not to promote struck works and so that means that you know not reviewing you know uh, union films and TV shows or anything like that and a lot of creators are doing that you know in particular I'm thinking about one popular anime adaptation that was uh, adapted into live action Um, The SAG and the WGA did not um, they did not ask for a consumer boycott but they did ask that, you know, you don't promote these works. And uh, this anime adaptation adaptation was really popular, and, and, and I watched it and all that stuff. But it was covered by a lot of social media influencers, by a lot of creators. And, um, you know, I think for the most part, they just didn't really realize what they were doing. Uh, I don't think that most of them were intentionally uh, undercutting the strike or... or um, Disobeying kind of what the union was asking for, uh, but there were a couple. Uh, so you know, I watch TikTok sometimes, and and because I like anime, um, I uh, there are a few anime TikTokers that I watch. Like they like talk about anime, um, Saiga Runner and. Brody Loman uh, both of them have and and their whole content is really centered around this anime that was ad- adapted into live action and uh, they stood in solidarity and are standing in solidarity because the actors are still on strike and they're so, so they're continuing to stand in solidarity with the actors and 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 formerly the writers and not reviewing this new product which is really like at the center of what their TikTok page is about. And so I have been really impressed with, with their sacrifice and their solidarity there because I know that they they, they could have gotten uh, a lot of hits off of that. And so I, uh, I, I like to shout people out when they do good. And I really do appreciate them. I think that that's not, you know, it's not something, it's not super small because uh, for, I think, uh, for at least Saiga Runner, that's like how he's making money now. That's like his living is TikTok, which is bonkers, but... He makes a lot of videos, and he does he does a good job. So, I appreciate that. Um, and so now uh, we are going to bring on to the program Chris Townsend. <laughs> Chris Townsend is a former political director with UE. He's former organizing director for the Amalgamated Transit Union. Uh, He has been in the labor movement for a very long time. He has uh, done so much for so many working people. I mean, really, really um, just anytime somebody needs him or asks for help, he's there to provide support. And we really appreciate him for for the support that he's given us here on the Valley Labor Report and for the, the support that he gives working people across the country. Chris Townsend, welcome to the Valley Labor Report. We appreciate your time.
1: Thanks. Thanks
3: for having me. Absolutely. So you reached out to us about, uh, you know, this UAW, Biden, Trump kind of stuff. And uh, we talked about it a little bit earlier and and, and just we, we didn't, you know, we didn't go into a whole lot of analysis. We really just talked about like what it was, like just what happened, because I knew that we were going to be talking about the analysis, some of the analysis with you. And so how are you seeing this moment as, you know, I mean, really, for the first time in American history, you've got the presumptive nominees from both political parties, like groveling for, for an endorsement from a union. I mean, that's pretty wild.
1: Yeah, it's a uh, it's an interesting moment in time. And I think that, uh, you know, folks like us, uh, you know, liberals, leftists, uh, trade unionists, You know, we we don't have any problem at all whatsoever in sort of easily, instantly debunking the motivations of a figure like Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's almost laughable, but the Joe Biden self-appointed, self-gifted title of the most pro-union president (laughs) in U.S. history is truly preposterous and uh, Mm -hmm. phenomenal, and it's not helpful, not helpful at all. Because uh, it's created an echo of the sycophants and unconditional supporters of him, folks who make money off of him, frankly, mm. uh, and folks who are politically tied to him and get a personal uh, benefit from that. And then it's very confusing to the rank and file. And I think the uh, you know any of us who have followed this, we know that Joe Biden had a long career in the Senate. He was not pro-union. He he of course was not overtly anti-union. We rarely had to battle him on something, but his support was generally lacking on anything that the labor movement needed him to move in his time in the Senate. And now that he's vice, or he was vice president and now president, uh, you know, we should recognize some of the things that he's done and we should Mm -hmm. not demonize him or in any way try to water down what he has done. But to make the claim somehow this has graduated into the most pro-union president in history is absurd. It exceeds the boundaries of the imagination on any right. sober day. And it's confusing because, uh, you know, we certainly need to mobilize the membership and confront the right danger, Trump primary among it. But we don't need to essentially blow a lot of smoke around the members and confuse them. And I think the best evidence of this is not Chris Townsend's opinion, but the Huffington Post sent a reporter up to Michigan because there was this oddity that you were referring to, Jacob. That, you know, We had uh, the former president and the current president uh, chasing workers around Michigan because it's a battleground state. Uh, if we weren't having an election, neither one of them would have went anywhere near that right. Uh, state. Right. In the Huffington Post article, it was about two days ago, there was extensive interviews with working people on both sides of the political Mm. equation, and neither candidate, either Biden or Trump, got any great credit from working people from this. It was something that I would have expected to see, but I guess I had to see it. I mean, it was just really—it proved that there was just a deep-seated cynicism of working people on both sides of this uh, aisle. Uh, And then, of course, a large group of people that don't identify with either of these political parties. And uh, I think that whatever the goal was of either campaign, um, it was confused, garbled, not helpful. Uh, And instead, what we need, maybe I'll end with this. I'll say, you know, this sitting president uh, needs to actually do something. Uh, to assist these workers. And flying out there to walk the picket line for six and a half minutes, is it, it, this is not helpful. Uh opens him up to criticism. and People, you know, it, it just, we need something more meaningful. So there are many, many things that he could do as United States president, which him and his inner circle are averse to even discussing. Right.
3: Yeah, and I absolutely would not uh i I would not contest the fact that there are more meaningful things that he could do but i do wonder if you don't think that it's it's at least uh you know they're uh meaningful in the sense that it is i i would i would interpret this as kind of a message to the companies that like look you know you're not going to be getting any help from the federal government uh on this kind of thing it's not necessarily saying that we're going to put this put put our thumb on the scales in this uh but what do you think about that in the va- in, in, in so far as being a message to the companies that you know look you're on your own here and as opposed to previous presidents who have you know sent in federal troops to break up strikes right
1: i don't think any of the big 3 management gave a damn about either candidate visiting. They know that Joe Biden has borrowed uh, billions of dollars. Let's get this on the record, too. He's got the power to borrow. He's borrowed. He's distributed billions and billions, hundreds of billions of dollars to the auto companies. These three corporations and unorganized companies, Tesla and others, have benefited massively from Biden's largesse. And uh, there's no fear whatsoever that this is suddenly going to be tapered down or stopped or anything. I mean, there's no no discussion of that, no announcement that that was one of the ways he was in contemplating influencing these companies. There's no uh, full court press of any of the regulatory agencies or anything. There's no rallying of other people in his party. Uh, there was no. Waiting group of congressional members. Where were the two senators from Michigan? You know, so it's, so all of this is happening literally only for the camera eye, mm. with the hope that somehow voters would respond to him. None of this was intended for the auto companies, and I think it just adds to the cynicism about mm. what was this. And uh, you know, it, it, it's it, and again, go back in the just recent few years. Uh, what could President Biden do or any other president do as a sitting president to assist workers uh, in battle? Uh, walking the picket line is something. We ought to you not know, the Auto workers were very welcoming of him, and that means something, yes. But go back to uh, the launch of the Amazon union thing. Mm. There was never any statements made either in Staten Island or in uh, Bessemer, Alabama, by the White House, actually saying very clearly, you should vote for the union and participate. This was what Franklin Roosevelt told workers, his classic, famous, probably now forgotten statement. If I was a worker, the first thing I would do is join a union. Mm. And we never got anything like that. We got clad Attitudes, and small little references to those two gigantic elections that we had one successful right. one unsuccessful roll fast forward to starbucks there's never been a press release from the white house that says mm. that the workers in starbucks should join the union uh it's uh it's sort of like well we'll work with the NRB and we support you and all this there's never been mm. a, 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 an actual affirmative act and i will submit that what is happening in a corporation like Starbucks, like Amazon, like any large corporation today, there's a criminal conspiracy to smash the union, spy on workers, harass them, and terminate them, premeditated. This is what's known as a conspiracy. It is a criminal act that they're doing. The president has the right to investigate this and apply some law enforcement, not just weak NLRB regulatory, Uh, machinery, but use criminal prosecution against these corporations. No mention of this, nothing. So it ends up peaking, you know, maybe the next one I'll mention is the railroad strike. Mm -hmm. Joe Biden cynically, uh, uh, unbelievably broke the railroad strike. Uh, We still have the basic issues that were leading to that strike unaddressed. Low wages, dangerous working conditions, and no days off or Mm. too few days off, and he busted that strike, and that is something with four monopoly railroads, which is what all we have now, uh, you know, because of governmental, you know, hands-off type things, allow these corporations to become bigger and bigger, and we now have a situation where that was broken, people quickly forgot about it, didn't want Mm. to talk about it. Uh, we had the interesting situation with the Biden administration during the UPS strike where Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamsters, told him very loudly and publicly, I don't want your help. Mm. I don't need your help. Don't come out here. Well, if that isn't a repudiation by itself of these right. claims of being so pro union, I don't know what is. But this was not some personality conflict. He didn't want these people coming out there, the president or any of his entourage, confusing the matter or... Yeah. Doing what they're prone to do in all these cases is not take sides. They want to play mediator. So mm. when in the auto talks uh prior to the strike, Biden made the whopper offer of sending Gene Sperling and Julie Sue, of which any normal person would have said, Who are they? Uh one is a has been, one is somebody who's a nice person, but she's not very well known. Neither one have ever negotiated labor contracts or been involved in strike struggle or anything like that. Well, Sean Fain, president of UAW, had good sense to say, "No thanks. I don't need you to send these folks out here." Because what he was well aware of is that they would have come out there and tried to mediate. They weren't being sent to advocate. They weren't being sent to take a side to look into this anyway. So, that, that, to me, Jake, Jake this is. Uh, until we have a president that actually takes sides, and in this case, the righteous side of the workforce, after everything that has been done to working people in this country, uh, this is going to be a disingenuous uh, a- a- expedition at best.
3: Yes, and and I do want to mention that you know you said that um, in, in your email to me that that we do a we do Biden a favor actually by confronting him. And this is a point that I was making on, yes. um, I was on, uh, I was a guest on Left Reckoning uh, last week. I don't know if you, uh, I, I don't know if you've heard of them, but uh, they, they've they got a YouTube program and, and I enjoy listening to them. And, you know, <laughs> what I was mentioning is that, look, if the UAW is ultimately at some point going to endorse Joe Biden, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't know. But if they do, It seems like it would be more valuable if it comes after a prolonged, you know, trying to get Biden to do more stuff that way. It seems more real. You get a whole new cycle out of one union's endorsement. It gets closer to the election, to the election. So people actually hear about it and care about it and remember it. Right. And, and this, this would not have happened. This trip to Michigan, you know, basically trying to earn an endorsement. Donald Trump, trying to you know groveling for an endorsement it would not have happened if the UAW had
1: endorsed no absolutely, biden absolutely. Already. Look, the, the, the optics of this particular biden visit were so garbled so bungled uh i think everyone may know that uh, the president's visit to michigan came several days after mm-hmm. trump's announcement that he was going to go right and then also in the wake of the fact that the united Auto workers said uh we're gonna to continue to consider this and we're not gonna endorse you yet because folks may remember the AFL-CIO as a, as the labor body of at least at least half of our labor movement in the United States. They had made it starkly, in my estimation, the ill-conceived, uh, almost dangerous early endorsement, unconditional uh, endorsement as well. No conditions were placed on that. And the UAW descended from that. So, uh, you know, it, To me, I I couldn't be more proud of uh, Mm -hmm. the UAW leadership and the Teamster leadership to say, wait a minute here, we're not just going to hand out our endorsement and hang our union button on you without a a significant discussion, significant, affirmative, provable, tangible acts on on behalf of our members and broader working class. Mm -hmm. And I think this moment just, it, it, reveals how remote the white house is from the reality of the workplace and the reality of the trade union movement today and i I, want to say uh, it won't be popular but i've never been one to seek popularity uh the trade union leadership in the united states that has fomented this situation the ones who stand up the presidents of the various unions and the afl-cio when they get up and many of them are Uh, repeating this claim that Joe Biden is the most pro-union president. Well, these folks ought to have their heads examined, really, and the members of these unions ought to look at this and say, you know, this is the caliber of leadership that you have. I mean, these are preposterous statements for them to repeat. Mm. And it's it's also, I think I had mentioned to you uh, in our conversation that uh, all of these union leaders poll their own memberships. Mm. And whatever you say about polling, uh, it is... Fairly scientific. It's it's right. a science in motion, but you dare not ignore it right. over and over and over again when they poll their own membership. Large proportions, 30, 40 percent of their membership comes up as supporting Trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the question becomes, what are these unions doing? What is the Labor Federation doing to educate the membership about how dangerous that is, how self-defeating that is among But of course, the problem is almost nothing is done to educate them. And then, of course, if all you're going to do is run around and yell slogans that this particular president deserves your support because he's the most pro-union president when there's no basis for that claim, I think we find ourselves where we are today. And in that article I had mentioned uh, in HuffPoke, large numbers of people just view the labor leadership, the political leadership, all that, they just view them as discredited background noise going on. And don't seek any real leadership from them, and it doesn't help them. It doesn't help us build the momentum that we need to push back against the far right and rebuild the labor movement. Right,
3: right. And you know, th- I find it particular particularly objectionable, like the l- the language that we use in our endorsements. You mentioned, as you know, as political director of the UE, that you would recommend people vote for Democrats. Typically, you know, obviously there are exceptions, but you would recommend that people vote for Democrats, but purely. As like a defensive maneuver, not because yes. this Democrat that you're saying that you should probably vote for is, uh, you know, the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I, you know, you, you mentioned that it's a disservice to the membership. And I, I really, really uh, uh, agree with that because it, it seems like we can we can encourage our membership and turn out our membership to vote for. This candidate who is typically a Democrat, who's going to be better for us or less bad for us without, you know, all of the fluff. Right. Our members are adults. Our members are union members. Our members are yeah. our brothers and sisters. And it it really just seems like it would be so much more respectful to when we do our endorsements, unless it's like a really remarkable kind of candidate, you know, like a Bernie Sanders, you know, like a Bernie Sanders is somebody who would be worthy of a lot of these types of ringing endorsements, but virtually no other politician in the country is, you know, we can say you should vote for this person, but I, it really baffles the mind that, that, you know, people feel the need to, to just go over the top with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I was the political director for UE. United Electrical Workers, for 21 years. I spoke to a lot of members and worked a lot of political campaigns, federal, state, and local, and my message was consistent. And it was not my message, it was the union's message. It was a democratically arrived at message, which was to say, vote like a worker, vote defensively, don't do crazy things, don't believe these folks based on promises and platitudes, look at the record. Mm. And then realize that our voting strategy is to buy time, that we're going to elect a lesser evil because we're only allowed to have two parties at the national level. I think anyone right. that wants to promote that fairy tale that somehow you're allowed to have third parties, well, not unless they're from the billionaire class, because that's part of the problem, the, the expense alone of feeling a candidate. But I used to give that talk and I would say the question is pushing back. It's anti-labor retrograde elements, which in recent times have been concentrated in the Republican Party. Mm. Push back, it means that you frequently have to elect, sometimes unfit, uninspiring, Mm. sometimes better than an average Democrat, but all it does is buy us time. We are Mm. hurtling towards various multi-layered calamities in this country. We have a climate calamity that now this summer we saw... We have a falling living standards of workers. Well, let's get this on the record. They're not falling. It's not an act of gravity. They're being driven down uh, by uh, you know, uncontrolled corporate dictatorship. Uh, we have, have a federal regulatory, uh, and, and you know that whole regiment is non-functional. Congress is even today non-functional. And uh, we have the rise of a, of a violent, armed, fascist, Network uh, that remains largely unaddressed and has mass support and uh, has the expression at the highest levels in our Congress. So I look at this and I think, you know, wow, we're buying time, but the missing link here is what is the leadership of this labor room doing uh, to push back on that? I mean, we may be, uh, I hate. To say this, it may come as a shock to some, but at the rate we're going, if these particular Republican elements regain power, we may be within a few months or years of the banning of the trade union movement. We've seen that in country after country. They come after us for good reason, because they know that we are that force that that promotes the class solidarity and pushes back against the employer. Uh, That would have been a hyperbolic uh, statement just a few years ago. It's not anymore. So I just challenge the labor leadership to say, what is it we're doing to mobilize the membership, teach and lead the membership, to push back against these retrograde forces? Not just running around telling people to vote for any Democrat, as if that by its singular act is going to fix the problem or save us Mm -hmm. from that far worse fate that does await us. Right. You mentioned you alluded to
3: it and and since you did I, I want to ask you to expand on it if you would you know the you, you mentioned kind of a, a delusion about a third party you know winning the presidency and I find the you know third party advocates like I I don't have an issue with third parties I think they're fine and particularly at a local level if you can do it then you know more power to you Bernie Sanders did it and you know he he became you know a very influential kind of person so you know uh, but it you know i think delusional is the right word when you're talking about the presidency and and the people that are so kind of hung up on that they conceive of themselves as moving beyond electoral politics to some kind of better and brighter future by advocating that people vote for a third party, but it's just a substitution. instead of pe- telling people to vote for the red team and all of your all of your troubles will be over or vote for the blue team and all of your troubles will be over. No no, no, you don't need that. If you vote for the green team, right, everything's gonna be fine and it's just it kind of blows my mind that people can kind of put that at the center of their politics and then act like they're beyond the kind of Democrat and Democratic
1: and Republican partisans. Yeah, I mean, in my 45 years of paying attention to things in in this country, uh, it's general. It's a generalization that would hold water. And in my experience, my view, looking back, that if a third party arises and remains insignificant, uh, it's tolerated. It may be harassed uh, politically or, you know, it may, its ballot status may be questioned and its fundraising might be uh, undermined. But it'll be tolerated because it presents no danger. But if we find a a movement that begins to actually look like something may materialize out of that in a permanent way, well, both parties have proven over the decades Mm. to gang up to prevent this. This, in some ways, is their worst nightmare. And I've always said uh, in the last 20, 30 years that the, the dilemma we face with the current setup of Democrats and Republicans is that as the Republicans increasingly lurch to the far right, and the extreme right, and beyond that, into out-and-out out fascism. All the Democratic Party has to do uh, to remain a viable second party is to be one degree to the left of that. Right. And then when you vote, given that that's the only choice that you're presented with, what choice do you have? Uh, you know, And, of course, there are choices. One of the big choices is people sit it out. People say the hell with it. People don't engage. They say, well, what difference does it make? Well, it does make some difference. But I think when you are one of those voices uh, in the Democratic Party that continually exaggerates and makes claims, preposterous claims of how much better they are and all that, it, it's not fought by the vast majority of people. And I guess it comes back to what I said uh, to, I don't know how many, countless UE members. I said, we're not, we're not endorsing the Democrat in most cases. We're not hanging the union button on that, sacrificing our own credibility as as leaders uh, in our union. We're saying to people, you have a practical choice. It's the only one you're allowed to have in this corrupt situation. So don't do something crazy. Don't make your problem worse. Don't add to your burden. Support this person as a means to buy time. And then the question becomes, what are you doing with that time that you bought? Mm. And I would submit that the, my critique of the bulk of the trade unions are they they participate in buying that time and then they don't do anything with that time. Mm. Uh, and it's, it's uh, you know, uh, the trade union movement, even in my lifetime, used to expend some time and energy teaching and leading members about the facts of life and our political. It's virtually gone. Go to a website and read a you know, two-paragraph piece, uh, in some ways, the publicity and the education of the trade duty movement has been handed over to the Democratic Party for them to write it. And uh, this is an exceedingly dangerous situation on several levels, not just this. yep. Yep.
3: Uh, Chris Townsend I, I appreciate your commentary always welcome um before we let you go uh do you are, are you able and and willing to talk about uh where you're at right now
1: oh sure yeah I'm coming to you live and unrehearsed from Rochester New York where I'm one of the folks who helped to start and I help lead what we call the inside organizing school this is a union organizing school dedicated strictly to initiating campaigns of organization, uh, initiating campaigns uh, in multi, multiple sectors. And we've been in existence uh, since 2017. And uh, we played a key role in the launching of the Starbucks movement, many other successful campaigns as well. So it's a very bare bones uh, let's get busy. Let's not fool around and shine that diamond any longer. Let's get into the workplaces and let's organize. So it's always very uh, inspiring. Uh, We're we're currently uh, supported by the Workers United joint board here. This was the home base of the Starbucks movement. And we uh, have held them in Washington, D.C. We've done them on Zooms. We're planning now to move them around the country. I hope we can come south probably in the winter uh, to do this to help inspire uh, this young generation of workers that want to get into motion and want to do it. It's real, it's tangible. And uh, a lot of what we do uh, is to stimulate the unions to do more than what they are because anyone who follows trade union organizing in the United States knows that the numbers are still bad, the numbers are still diminishing, uh, the labor movement is not growing. And what uh, we've seen in places where you know, energetic uh, activism can be launched, success can be had. And uh, we act as a little bit of, a, of a, a push on some of these trade unions to do it. And I maybe the final thing I'll say is, is that we all knew that during the pandemic, union organizing, like so many things, was kind of derailed, stalled, or whatnot. But the facts were revealed that today, we were, as the pandemic has abated, We're still not even back to the trade union commitment that it had prior. Hmm. So it was understandable, perhaps, under some of those circumstances. But why haven't we come back? Why aren't we making up for the time? Where are the organizers? Where are the campaigns? Where is the AFL-CIO? It announced an organizing initiative 18 months ago, and I still have no evidence of it. So. In any case, we do what we can do as one small school. Uh, I wrote an article. If anyone's curious about it, I wrote an article for Labor Notes. If they can remember Labor Notes, if you're familiar with it, Chris Townsend. If you Google up an article that I wrote about Salting, this is one of the tactics of uh, you know speeding up new organizing. If uh, you Google up the article that they did back in May, it has my email. So anyone interested in our school, just Google up Chris Townsend Salting labor notes, and the article will come up, and my email is there for anybody that would be curious. Uh, we don't have a website, although we uh, had one, and we lost the login information during the pandemic, I mean, it's it's because we don't put a big premium on a bureaucracy here, we mm. put a premium on doing the organizing. So anyway, thanks for asking. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, uh, project that we have going here. Yep, yeah, absolutely.
3: Chris, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: No problem. Thank you, and good luck.
3: Yep, appreciate it. All right, folks, that is going to be it for us today. Uh, Appreciate y'all tuning in. Appreciate everybody hanging out with us in the chat. Jose, you said that uh, it's not accurate that Sean O'Brien told Biden to mind his own business, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Uh, I remember that coverage, or I remember actually covering that during the... um, During the UPS negotiations, Um, Fox Business Teamsters leader tells Biden to butt out of labor talks with UPS. Quote, we don't need anybody getting involved in this fight. O'Brien's call for Biden to refrain from involvement in negotiations. So. Yeah, pretty sure that was correct. Um, But uh, that's going to be it for us today. I appreciate everybody's time. Uh, tvlr.fm slash donate. If you uh, would like to make a uh, one-time or monthly recurring donation, it would be greatly appreciated. Um, We could not do this program without our donors, uh, without folks supporting the show. We should... um, uh, uh, Yeah, biggest source of funding is from our listeners. So if you want to support, uh, tvlr.fm slash donate is going to be how to do it. Um, and uh, uh, tvlr.fm slash stores, where you can find our merch. Um, if you want to find us during the week, search the Valley Labor Report wherever you uh, get anything. Um, and, uh, you know, TikTok, Twitter, YouTube facebook all that good stuff um where wherever you are tvlr.fm is our website with that we're going to go ahead and head out uh and adam will see you thursday morning i will see you a week from today solidarity y'all